So it's really appropriate that today's episode is with somebody who does work on the radio because Getting Better Acquainted is coming to the radio. There's a 13-part series of half-hour episodes that are going to be going out on Resonance 104.4 FM on Thursdays at 7.30pm and Fridays at 10pm. So it's going to be 13 episodes with some of the best conversations from the first 100 episodes of Getting Better Acquainted edited into half an hour crunchy tasty chunks of audio conversation. So every week from the 4th of April onwards Getting Better Acquainted is on Resonance FM. Have a listen over there. But don't stop listening here because we're still coming out weekly with long-form conversations like this one. And that's one of the things which I love about radio is that it's it's musical. You know, it's it's sound, it's words, that words have a music to them. And all of a sudden, like, I started hearing just this rumble and I thought it was just, you know, a big truck. And then all of a sudden the building just starts shaking. Like, you know, literally everything is moving. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Dave. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I, I still laugh every time I say that because it's so unnatural. And I'm, now I'm aware that it's almost becoming a catchphrase of the show, me saying, I always laugh. you sort of looking at what you do more and more the more you record conversations like this. <laughs> I mean, you were just saying off mic before we started that this is an unnatural situation for you because you normally are the one on this side of the interview. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. It's very weird. It's very strange. I can't. I don't like the sound of my own voice. And so, like... Yeah, it's yeah. odd. <laughs> I don't know if anyone likes the sound of their own voice. I I didn't like the sound of my own voice when I started doing mm. this project. I I think I've made peace with it at the moment, but although it's a bit husky today. Yeah, very. Bit, yeah, I know. <clears throat> smoking too much. Probably true, although I've been mostly smoking an electronic cigarette recently, so you'd think that that would at least give me a lack of huskiness. Finally, the show comes out out of sequence, so people hear me one week husky and one week not, and one week yeah. smoking and one week yeah. not, you know. And what number is this? Wow, I don't know where it'll come out. Yeah. Next week is 80, Mm -hmm. but then there's about maybe 100 in the bank. There's a lot. It's crazy. It's kind of crazy. I can't stop recording people. Keep my fingers crossed for 100. Oh, wow, yeah. (laughs) I might have to be for someone special. I don't know. I might have to do something for that, but I Mm. haven't worked out what. Yeah, indeed. What shall you do? So the, the first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? I know you because you came to a event that I was hosting, which was a radio listening event at the Invisible Picture Palace at Wapping Project in East London, which is organised by In The Dark, which is an organisation that I volunteer with. And it was a open mini-jack night, and we both played some pieces of work. Yeah, that's right. And you played the piece about your father. That's right. And the, the, I the, think it's called The Partition, but yeah. I, might, I might even be wrong about that. And about, <laughs> about the house that you lived in in Wales... 
and the fact that you now live on the same street and, and various As things. my dad. I like the fact that you can remember so many details. That's, I guess, a compliment. I'm well, about that. quite a lot of the things kind of... Res- I didn't get a chance to talk about this at the time, and I guess it would probably come out now, but a lot of the things in there kind of resonated with me because I guess you could say my family situation was a little bit similar. Okay. In that my, when my parents split up at 16... They lived next door to each other for two years. Ah. They bought the house next door as a terrace. They bought the house next door and turned it into a flat. And then when they split up, they thought it would be a really good idea to live next door to each other until they sold both houses. So was it a good idea? No, it was a disaster. <laughs> it was a real disaster. Well, I mean, it couldn't have been really any different. But So there was things about that. There was other things which was just kind of made me like freak out mentally because they were so similar. God, I can't remember. There were some really weird things. Well, it, I mean, I, I've not... Stuff about your dad and his relationship to women was okay. similar to my dad. So Interesting. Think, think, or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the third conversation I did with my dad is about his, him and his relationship with women, actually. That'll come out a while in the future it's kind of a one I should, I've, I've been teasing the third conversation that I had with my mum for like loads and loads of episodes but I haven't done much teasing for my dad's one so it's okay. nice to have a little bit out there but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean obviously I'm very close to my dad he sounded like a character yeah that's, that's and my dad true. is a character let's put it that way <laughs> okay but anyway maybe that's going that's, too yeah, deep, well, that's, too early it might be I don't know <laughs> because we've only met once before it's, yeah. it's always hard to know you know where, where where the where the areas are that you shouldn't go or where you should go and it's kind of an exciting adventure finding them out yeah the second question that I ask people is what do you do now I am a radio producer an aspiring radio producer I just finished a master's in radio journalism at Goldsmiths and I'm freelance. I've had a couple of things on Radio 4, short things, and a multimedia piece that I made on the Radio 4 website. I've also recorded audio for Radio 4 and NPR, and done various bits and bobs of audio stuff, some for love, some for money. And also, now that it's freelance, or rather, now that I don't have the funding that my masters gave me, I have to work, which is a bit kind of galling. But I uh, am now working on a brownie stall at the <laughs> Royal Festival Hall at week- okay. weekends behind it in the market. Yeah, I know market. that market quite well. I do a lot of the uh, getting better acquainted conversations in the Royal oh, Festival right, Hall. Oh, yeah, right, <laughs> It's, it's a space that you can get yeah. for free and it's yeah, yeah. quiet. Well, I'm there most weekends, so oh, well, you can I might come see you pop there, by, yeah. yeah. So that's fun, and I, I also do various other things as well, mainly for love, not money. I run a pop-up restaurant with my best friend Francesca, which we had an event Sunday a couple of days ago. Wow, what's a pop-up restaurant? So we're both kind of people who love food and love cooking for lots of people, but we don't necessarily want to make that our career. And so we started serving brunch, a different brunch from around the world every kind of month, roughly, in the house that we used to live together. We used to live in this really wonderful house in Kentish Town, which had a really big living room. And so every month or so, we would invite about 15 people around and set it up like a very small restaurant and then cook brunch because we both really love breakfast and you don't want to serve it at 9.30 on a Saturday. So we made it 11, 11.30. 
And that's kind of like my favorite meal. Like, yeah, well, it top, is one mine. Of my top three, one of my top three. Yeah, but now, so we did that for about a year, and we did about ten of them there, and then we, because we had to move out of that house, we now do it at a place called Sugar House Studios in Stratford, which is a big cafe come cinema in an old warehouse which is great but it's much bigger so we we cater to up to 50 people so we were cooking bangladeshi food oh, on wow. sunday and they showed a film the film adaptation of brick lane after the food so oh, it's right, kind okay. of usually we match the film and the food but what we used to do for brunch in our house was we had music my friend who i do it with is a musician and so she knows loads of really fantastic musicians and they would come and be our waitress slash musician performer, which was always good. So we hope we're going to go back to that because it was a bit more intimate. So I do that. I also do food tours of Chinatown. I'm doing one this Sunday. Wow. <laughs> you want to come to it? I don't, if I'm, I don't know if I'm free or not. Oh, Often I'm not, but I, mm. I might. I mean, if I'm if I'm available, I will come because, I mean. Something I, I know about you in advance is that you lived in China yes. and you write a blog about Chinese food. I Yeah, I used, used to write to. a blog you, about Chinese yeah. food when I was in China, really. I haven't really updated it since I left two years ago. Very, no, but you were there for quite a long time. I was there for almost three years, yeah. And so, and you were blogging all through that. So there's lot, there's plenty there to, to get yeah. your teeth, well, to get your teeth into. Literally, kind of, literally. yes, yeah, it was, it was uh, brilliant. You were a visitor in China. You're not, you're not Chinese. I assume, no. I assume. I mean, I no, assume from visual hints. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, and I don't think in character I'm very Chinese, but there's certain Chinese qualities I think that I've definitely imbibed from living there for so long, and a lot of them are to do with food. So. I have a real, like, kind of very deep love of Chinese food and particularly the food of the region where I lived, which is Sichuan, which is, you know, the most famous cuisine of China. Okay. Um, and so I lived in the city Chengdu, which is really, it's a very nice city. It's very relaxed. You know, the people are very friendly. It's got a very laid back lifestyle, but visually it's nothing special it's just high rises and horrible weather awful weather but the food is just amazing and I, I went to China with only expecting to stay there for maybe six months or a year and I ended up staying for almost three and most of that was in Chengdu and yeah oh yeah Cheng, yeah I, I go I kind of go a bit misty-eyed whenever yeah, I think sure. about it because it's very very special the food is I think the best some of the best in the world and and it's just, there's something about the food, particularly in Sichuan, where it's very connected to the hospitality of the people and the warmness of the people. The, the food is very spicy and it's very kind of full of really strong flavours. But it's also, you know, really quite, it's quite sophisticated, you know. It's quite, it's, it's on a par with French cuisine and its sophistication. But it's also very homely and very comforting. And it's nothing like the Chinese food that we know here in the UK. It's completely different. It's just superb. And <laughs> and it's just so, I, you know, because it basically Chinese food was my way into Chinese culture. I didn't, you know, I, 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 I learned Chinese, but I was never fabulous at learning Chinese. A lot of people, you know, get into the culture through that way. Or maybe they do martial arts or maybe they learn about tea or they you know get into the singing and dancing or whatever but my thing was food and so the food of china is really 
kind of connected to to who I am now as well. And I think actually, I'm very Chinese in my eating habits. I I really love spicy food. I prefer chopsticks to knife and fork. I there's certain things like certain weathers that make me crave certain foods, and that's definitely something that I got from China. Like the whole kind of thing about Chinese medicine, which you know we kind of know a little bit about in the West, but it actually extends to the cuisine as well. You know, you're meant to eat certain foods when you're feeling a certain way, and I've really kind of you know taken that on board. Okay. And I really, I just whenever I. And, and you know all the pe- all the really good friends I made in China were through food, <laughs> <laughs> so it is it's something I really love. Well, how did you end up in China? I'm from Yorkshire originally, West Yorkshire, and I lived there all my life until I went to university in Brighton. And after I finished university, I was going out with a guy called Cam, who is Australian, and he wanted to go and teach English in China, and I didn't have any other plans after my sure. degree, so I was like, okay, I'll go and do that then. And we had a, vla- a vague idea to kind of stay there just for six months or a year, and then travel around the rest of Asia, and eventually end up in Australia. But that didn't happen. And so I went there to teach English initially, and I did end up teaching English for a long time, for two and a half years. But I also got into journalism that way because I started writing my blog. And then I started writing reviews for a magazine, and then I wrote a column about the local food, and then I ended up doing bits and bobs of other media work in China, and then I came back to the UK in 2010. You said you were initially going for six months, and you yeah. had this plan to go around the world. What happened? It was really like we often talked about it, me and Cam, why we were so comfortable just staying there. And Chengdu has that reputation. It. It baits people, and it's very hard to leave once you're there. It's just remarkably laid back. For, for imagine, it's like the Brighton of China, okay, but not by the sea and with worse weather. Less, a, it's a good example. Less a hipsters, good, probably. There's a few hipsters. <laughs> oh, okay. There's quite a few hipsters, but yeah, less. There's there's more more <laughs> elsewhere. But like Chengdu, yeah. What kept us? It, it's fascinating. I mean, just China on a level of the whole of China is fascinating and amazing, and it's you know the biggest story of the twenty first century. And you could tell that you know I was I got there in two thousand and seven, so two thousand eight was the year of China. It was just crazy. Like there was the Tibet riots, there was the earthquake, there was the Olympics, there was yeah. the baby milk scandal. Though I mean that year particularly was just like a really news laden year. But in China, it felt like all the news was about China. It really did, and it was just like incredible. You felt like you're in the eye of a storm, and you know, and that it was exciting, and that weird, weird shit was happening all the time. Like, and it's just, and it's just, it, it's diff- you know, it's a completely different culture. So all the kind of East-West stereotypes are there, and you can derive a lot of pleasure from that. But why we ended up staying for so long? I think had a lot to do with Chengdu just being a really seductive place. Even though it's not got good weather, it's not particularly pretty. It's just so laid back compared to other Chinese cities, and it's renowned for kind of like getting its nails into a lot of foreigners and Chinese alike, and that they find it really hard to leave because it's cheap. 
The food is delicious. The people are laid back. They're really friendly. It's got some beautiful scenery and, and countryside roundabout. It's very well connected. Like, it's just too easy. And I have lots of friends who've stayed there for several years and several years more than they intended to. It's interesting what you say about the people being laid back because, I mean, one of the the... I guess stereotypes in the West is that in China it's very regimented, it's very kind of mm. structured, there's not very much freedom, but laid back suggests freedom. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I mean, so many of the preconceptions about China in the West are, are really way off the mark. Freedom is a very, you know, I'm reading... It's a complicated it's word. It's a complicated yeah. word, and I'm reading Freedom by Jonathan Franzen okay. right now, <laughs> so I can tell you all about that, but I won't. Um... It is a complicated word and the thing is about China is that yes it you know people aren't free to vote for their leaders they're not really that free to express their political opinions but they are at the same time they're free to express them as long as they don't do anything about it that in China there's been a social contract made between and this is not my own idea this is something that is just kind of recognized if you read stuff about China there's a social contract been made between the government and the people well, the government have said to the people we will allow you economic freedom and lots more freedom than you had under the time of Mao you know it's a quite free place in exchange you're not going to get any political freedoms Okay, so that is the contract that has been made. And a lot of Chinese people are completely happy with that. Well, in a weird way, I don't think it's particularly different from, from Western life. Yeah. In a, I mean, we, we may vote for, for different parties, but there are there is very little difference in some ways between the, the parties when we look at our political system. But we're all economically free to do whatever we like. You know? Yeah, exactly. But having said that, you know, if you cause any trouble in China, you oh, know, yeah. you, you, you ask for basic human rights for a variety of minority groups, you'll get in trouble. But it's complicated. It's a really complicated place. And, and so much of the, the reporting of China in the West is so simplistic and so stupid. You know, they obviously don't know their arse from their elbow the people who are writing about China you know everyone's because it's such a big story everyone's wanting to get a stake in it and so there's just a lot of bullshit one of the things that got you interested in doing media work when you were in China was food but it sounds like another part of it was seeing new things yeah, you know, yeah. seeing it anew yeah well because definitely actually it was while I was in China that Facebook became inaccessible but it only became inaccessible if you know, you just use normal internet. As long as you used a firewall, you could get around it. Right. This is one of the preconceptions about China that is off the mark, is that, you know, the internet is unavailable. The internet is available coming out of people's eyeballs, but there's certain words and pages which are blocked, which you can get around easily yeah. if you know how, which most people do. And people who use the internet in China are often very, I wouldn't say open-minded, but they're quite kind of subversive in a way. I was reading The Guardian, I was listening to BBC News about China while I was in China. And so, and not so much The Guardian, but a lot of the time the BBC, I just kind of thought, what is this? Like, what are they talking about? You know, it's so misrepresentative. The lives of foreigners, everyday Chinese people, I guess are not that interesting to the, the global media. They want the big stories, mass uprisings yeah. or the mass deaths or whatever. I think I noticed for the first time my eyes were open to how 
misrepresentative the media is of certain places. I'd never really experienced that before. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I, I mean, I, I think it's almost like the media doesn't even mean to... It's not like, it's not like a, a lot of people kind of in the fringes kind of think oh the media is kind of is some kind of conspiracy but yeah. it's not it's just practically people don't have access to these things they're just making the things up based on what they think yeah. is right you know yeah. Not, yeah it's a funny it's a funny but one. i do think there's quite a lot of willful lack of good reporting about china because there is already a story and stereotypes that exist about China. Mm. Actually, they're in the process of de- developing now, and they're kind of, they're different. It's not communism anymore. It's not, or rather, it is. You know, like even the communist thing. You know, China's the least communist place you'll you'll ever come across in terms of economics. Mm. But there are obviously some things which remain in people's minds. There's just stereotypes and, and ways in which people are used to reporting about China, which actually. I think are very offensive, you know, mm. because they're stereotypical. You know, no one should be stereotyped, basically. Sure. And and I think I felt that a lot because I had friends who are Chinese and I felt like so much that they confounded so many of these stereotypes. I mean, lots of people live up to those stereotypes as well. But you just think, you know, that it's it's just not fair. It's really not fair. And, and China has a big chip on its shoulder about that anyway. Like, yeah, I bet. It, yeah. You know, it really doesn't like the way it's represented in the Western media. It thinks that it's all, you know, like negative and they're doing it on purpose because they fear China or they're jealous of its economic success. So it's a complicated, it's a really complicated picture. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I, and I should think, I mean, although I was sort of dismissing conspiracy theorists and I, I do dismiss conspiracy theorists, I mean, I'm sure there is an element of the way that we portray China that comes from a political bias because, yeah. I mean, they're a massive threat to everywhere else in the whole world you know it's in, mm. a, in, a, in an economic sense in a you know but in some are, ways they're the saviour yeah well exactly right yeah but yeah. they're not the saviour of the they're not the saviour of the people in power in other countries necessarily oh yes they are okay how how, how would you say they are because they're lending them they're, they're the global bank Oh yeah, they're they're, they're lending. lending yeah, they're lending, they're lending all these governments. Look, every government in the world has probably borrowed money from China. Absolutely, but doesn't that mean that they own own those governments? I mean, that, that's that's why you know when well, you from, feel from China's perspective that it's a good thing. Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I I have. I mean, my stepdad's in uh, in China. I probably really? as we at the moment and he sa- he says a lot of a lot of similar things to what what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, and I. And I, I I haven't. I mean, I'm not going to say that China is worse than any any other state, particularly you know, mm. and, or that they're danger in a way that you know people are very scared of China. I know. I mean, yeah, but what are they? You know, what are they scared of? I do think uh, there's a little bit of veiled racism. I think in a lot yeah, of the criticism probably. of China, and you know, I've been brought up to always fight against racism, and for me, like growing up in Britain racism was never really directed towards Chinese people. I was aware of it as being a problem for Pakistani people or black people, but I never got the sense that it was a big issue for Chinese people because I didn't know any Chinese people. But when when I went to, you know, when I went to China, I just kind of thought, well, yeah, there is actually a lot of racism there. And... We we might be racist towards China. I'm sure mm. we are. I'm 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 almost certain we are. Did you have that the other way? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Western women are open-minded, which means loose sluts. Okay. <laughs> so um, I had that occasionally. It's like China's attitude towards the West and Westerners 
is on the one hand massively chippy and massively arrogant. So, you know, they're chippy in the sense that they think that Britain's better than China because it had its industrial revolution ages ago. It's, you know, developed, it's got money, it's got the royal family. And those are all things they kind of envy. And those are things that they envy. Right. But then they have this kind of arrogance. We have 2,000, oh, however many years of history, that's the line, you know, loads of history, that's a good thing. It's pretty true. I mean, the, the, it's mo true, most but things like, that we enjoy, like tea came from China, didn't I? I mean, yeah. know, ink and gunpowder, all sorts of things. But everywhere has history. Sure, sure. It's only that China's has been very well documented. It's a very old culture and there's lots to be proud of, but there's lots to be ashamed of Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah. don't, They don't tell you about that. Okay. And China basically thinks it, it is superior to everyone. And it has, and it has that thing, and that is that's something I think that a lot of people aren't aware of in the West. That China does ba basically, China thinks it's better than everyone, everyone else, and most people in China, whatever their region is, they think that region or that city is better than everywhere else in China. So there's a lot of like well, hierarchy going on here. How 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 human of them? I mean, you know, <laughs> no. it's same same everywhere. Isn't well, it? it's, it's true. just a sad thing. It's true. That's true. I mean, you became interested in doing media stuff in China and you yeah. were doing blogging, so writing mostly. Yeah. yeah. When did, when and how did audio mm -hmm. enter your life? When I was in China, my ex-boyfriend who I was with then is a musician and he had quite a good audio recording. So he was starting to make sound recordings and I started to realise that I was quite into the, that idea. And I also listened to a lot of radio, but mm. that, that comes later. When I was in China with this recorder, I recorded a friend of mine, a Chinese friend of mine. I, I started a collection of Chinese idioms, which, you know, like kind of expressions which are untranslatable. They're kind of like, it's raining cats and dogs. It's not literally raining cats and dogs. Sure. And there are loads and loads of Chinese idioms that use food. And I became really interested in these and I thought it'd be great to put them on my blog. And so I recorded my friend, Pablo not his real name, uh, who has a beautiful Chinese-speaking voice and he does, like, voiceovers for adverts and stuff. I recorded him saying these idioms and using them in example sentences. So that was, like, my first experience of recording a voice. And then when I was there, I also recorded an interview that I did, which was a written interview, eventually, with a musician called Abigail Washburn, who is a bluegrass American roots musician who is becoming quite well known but not that much here but her thing that's really extraordinary is that she started as a china person she wanted to study law in beijing and she speaks fluent chinese and was a poised to come and study law in beijing and then she got discovered in nashville and became like this super famous nashville banjo player just, she's a real character and she plays in Chengdu a lot. She used to live in Chengdu in the 90s and she, she did a... She's Chinese. No, no, no. She's, she's not. She's, Chi she's American. Abigail okay. Washburn. Right, right, yeah. It didn't sound she's like... She's barely American. No, she's American. She's white. She's got curly blonde hair and she... She gave up on her Nashville dreams to no, 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 China. No, 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 the other way around. Okay. She gave up on her China dreams to become a Nashville musician. Okay. So she was like, China was her thing. She was living in China or she'd lived in China, she'd studied Chinese at university, she spoke it fluently, that was going to be her career. Okay. 
then she went on this kind of goodbye to america tour with her banjo that she was just learning to play and she, the reason why she was learning the banjo is because she thought that it was the one good thing about american culture that she could bring to china and say hey guys you know america's great listen to this music and she got discovered by like a talent scout like playing around a campfire at a festival Wow. and became a very successful musician and she sings songs in Chinese she's very engaged with China still she did a a wonderful album and that was when I, I met her with some children who had survived the earthquake in Sichuan because that happened when I was there oh, right. she was launching this album that she'd made of these kids I went to one of her shows and asked her if I could interview her for this magazine she said yes and we ended up meeting up and just for my memory you know, as, a, as an aide, as journalists do, I recorded it using my boyfriend's recorder. Didn't think anything of it. I went back to England and was having an awful time of it in England for six months when I moved back. And it was Christmas 2010, so I moved back in April and had a terrible time until Christmas. And then, was that just having no, no money? Um, and it, no... Was, it was having no money, it was having split with my boyfriend, sure, but it was yeah. also because my father was at that time diagnosed with a brain tumour. Oh, I'm and sorry so to hear that. that was fairly heavy. Yeah. So I was having a really shit time, didn't know what I was doing had kind of done a, a media-related internship that I wasn't paid for, was on the doll, was on housing allowance, was not really going anywhere. And it was Christmas 2010, and I was having a hideous family Christmas with my mum's family, and was miserable. Oh, God. <laughs> I, hate, I hate family Christmases. Yeah, and for us it's even more pointless, because we're Jewish, so there's nothing like, oh, my, you know... Oh, yeah, well... There's no significance yeah, to it at all. Well, all, all my lot are atheists. So oh, right, same, there you go. Same, same deal. Mm. So, I was in pool in Dorset and I had my laptop with me and literally to escape my my horrible family Christmas I thought I'm going to edit the audio from the Abigail Washburn interview and I edited it on Audacity which as you know is pretty shit. And uh, it's free though. It's free though so... yeah exactly and so I edited it and I just enjoyed that so much that I kind of thought maybe this could be what I make my career and and so I did a bit of research and I found the course at Goldsmiths. I found that it had funding. So I applied for the course, I applied for the funding and then I got the funding. And then like since then I've kind of been involving myself in as much radio things as possible. Well, Goldsmiths is apparently very good for, for yeah, uh, radio stuff. I is. know people who've done courses. Yeah, there. yeah, it's excellent. It is. So why did you leave China? I left China because me and my boyfriend had decided to break up. Right. Actually, no start again I, I so I, I went there in 2007 mm -hmm. in 2009 so I didn't leave China I didn't leave Asia for two years because I couldn't afford the flight back but I decided okay it's been two years I'd better go and see family and friends in the UK for six weeks and I did and up until that point I was like I'm staying in China for the next few years why would I go back to England you know the financial crisis had just happened Everything I was hearing was depressing and miserable, and I thought, I'm sticking with China. And then I went back to the UK. I did. Yeah. I did yeah. And then I moved, and then I came back to the UK just for a visit, and like my mind was blown by how great it was. Like I'd forgot, I'd completely forgotten all the great things that Britain has that China doesn't have. And that's, you know, it's so naive, really. What? But I was what? a bit younger. What were you like? A developed cultural scene. <laughs> okay. There's one. Number one. I yeah. wasn't living in Beijing at that time. I lived in so I lived in Chengdu, which is you know, like the Cardiff 
of time. I, I, I lived in. You were okay. So. so there's nothing wrong. So there's 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 music. There's interesting stuff, but not that much of it. And actually, yeah, well, there's less of it. I had about a little moment in the mid, middle of the nineties, but I was never yeah. I was never into any of the bands that uh, were right. successful. But yeah, I that's mean, well, that in, in, is a good analogy then, because Chengdu has this music scene. Like it's quite well known for its music scene, but I really didn't like it in the music. <laughs> so that wasn't so good. Like cultural scene variety of food even though i loved the food it was very monotonous you know like you they chinese or sichuan people think that their food is the best in china and so they don't have any other chinese food and they don't really have much western food and food's a really big thing for me so the weather like the weather in chengdu was god awful what hot and rainy yeah gray really gray like not just cause because of pollution but also because it's on a basin and so that's just like they say in chinese the sichuan dog barks at the sun because it doesn't know what it is (laughs) and that's like an old phrase not just a recent one so so the weather and also you know because i had friends in china but you know and i had good friends in china but coming back to friends who'd known me for years and years was something kind of quite special and I kind of realised how much I valued that. Yeah, I bet. And so, and I kind of thought I can't develop my career in China, which is not quite true. Like, if I'd lived in Beijing longer, then I'm sure I could have developed my career, but Beijing or Shanghai is the only place you can really do it for for the media. And so, and so I decided to leave China and try it out in England. And and so I decided to, to leave Chengdu and go in just for a couple of months to do an internship at Time Out magazine in Beijing, which I did. And then I moved back to the UK. And I was disenchanted by it with China, is also the other thing. I, I got the, the, the... It's a really, like, common thing for Westerners to get sick of China. It's like... It's something that's endlessly written about in a quite boring way in some respects, but... It's true, and it happened to me, you know. So all of a sudden you're like, ugh, bad manners, ugh, loads of people, ugh. You know, all the kind of annoying, slightly, you know, prejudiced things which I had always shunned when I'd been living there for two years without going back to the UK. I always thought it was great, and I couldn't understand these people who moaned about it. But when I moved back, when I went back to the UK, I kind of thought, oh, there's more There's more to life than China. Let's put it that way. It's, okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting kind of journey that you went on, kind of falling yeah. falling in love with a culture and then kind of turning my right back it, on falling it. Out of it. Or, or you know, it seems like you've got a kind of more balanced view of China. I guess so now. Yeah. When you went there. Yeah, definitely. It was very odd coming back to the UK, having lived there for almost three years. I felt more Chinese than British for the first six months mm. of living back in the UK, and I felt like I wasn't understood, and I felt like no one understood anything about China and the, my whole three years there we were in irrelevance and you know people didn't care about it and I, I was having a hard time but like yeah it was it was hard for the first six months but now now I feel like I can't leave London like, <laughs> completely and utterly oh, London, can, yeah. London can do that to yeah you, exactly what was it like living through an earthquake shit scary um <laughs> I, bet. I thought yeah i thought i was gonna die and i was teaching a class full of like 19 year olds at the time on like the fourth floor or something of a building in a university and actually i really want to make a radio program about this because it's really it's an odd experience i mean obviously have you ever 
experienced an earthquake? Never experienced no. anything like an earthquake. I have heard people's accounts, but... Uh, yeah. No, I well, I mean, I, I had never experienced anything. No near-death experiences at all. No car crashes, no nothing. And so it was a very scary. I mean, I was... So I was teaching... And they were all just doing some work and I was at the front of the class just reading some notes and all of a sudden like I started hearing just this rumble and I thought it was just you know a big truck and then like I look up and all my class are looking up and wondering what it is and all of a sudden the building just starts shaking like you know literally everything is moving and because it was really strong like it was I think what was it eight at its epicenter uh, and that was only 100 kilometres away from where okay. I was. So I probably felt it at about six. And that was strong enough because it was really, really strong. And it went on for ages. It's like it went on for like three minutes. And because I'd, I'd been told that this is what you do, I told all my students to go under desks or into the doorways because apparently that's the best place. Because if something falls, you've got something to protect you. Yeah, yeah, and also that the frames are are kind of, you know, the most stable part, so you won't, nothing will fall on you there. Okay. I can't even remember where I heard this from, but anyway, I had done. And I was, you know, I really tried to remain calm and and tell my students to do that. And I'm kind of glad I did, because it would have been awful, because I heard that the staircases are the first things to collapse. That's what one of the things that that I... thought very quickly in my brain came don't go down the stairs kids just stay there but that meant that we were in the building pretty much for the whole earthquake so we felt it and it was ter- it was terrifying it's yeah. awful and you're up high so yeah was wobbling around yeah and yeah and my students are screaming and panicking it, almost everyone else i know just ran out of the building straight away uh, well i had one friend who was on a really high rise like a 25 story and i think he was on the 20th floor and he thought it was going to collapse so he grabbed his dog and went and ran up to the to the um roof so that he could see the sun like see the uh, sky if he was gonna die with wow. the dog so there so after it happened you know no one died no nothing no one was even hurt it was just like it kept on going on it kept on going on and i thought this is ridiculous it It was like i think it it couldn't have been three minutes like i think it's it was only a couple of minutes from the really like shaky part the whole Mm. thing was probably like three and a half four minutes but it's really hard to say i don't know and so eventually i was like right get out get out get out so we all ran out Everyone was fine, you know, the whole university is outside and, you know, we get loads of aftershocks afterwards and stuff and, you know, everyone goes home, basically. I didn't realise for, like, a good 24 hours the extent of it, no one did, but it killed 75,000 people, that earthquake, it was huge. And most of those, a lot, well, not most, but a lot of those deaths were preventable because what this i mean you know about ai weiwei right the the chinese artist mm-hmm. ai weiwei. i do one of his big campaigns is to try and find out how many children died in their schools in the earthquake because of shoddy construction so on the outskirts of chengdu where i lived so towards the earthquake zone but not nearly in the earthquake zone were lots of schools in one particular area where the local authorities had obviously got cut price and construction jobs done for the buildings and the buildings all around them were fine but schools collapsed and the kids Mm. died 
which is awful uh, terrible yeah and you know horrible stories of like teachers abandoning their children inside the schools to save their own skins and all this really nasty stuff and particularly for china where there's a one child policy so so many of these parents it was their one child who died yeah, and it's just terrible God. really awful loads of really little children the week two weeks after the earthquake were, were some of the most intense and memorable weeks of my life i almost got arrested because i was uh, we we had lots of couch surfers you know couch surfing we had this guy who was at the time who was there staying with us when the earthquake happened mm. who was a clown and he thought it'd be a great idea after the earthquake to go and do some clowning on the streets of chengdu and raise some money and give sure, it to charity absolutely, absolutely brilliant idea yeah. right this, here is where the east-west thing kind of comes into play <clears throat> we went out we all dressed up in like stripy red t-shirts and red noses and he had lots of juggling and music and stuff like that and tightrope walk on the main street of chengdu this was a week pretty much exactly a week after the earthquake and we were kind of clowning around for like 10 minutes we've got loads of money we had a sign in chinese explaining what the deal was mm -hmm. because we'd only been there for six months and so we didn't speak chinese me and my boyfriend and we we were doing it for 10 minutes and then all of a sudden this guy starts screaming at us and shouting and shouting and shouting we can't understand what he's saying suddenly this huge crowd of people starts to develop and we're starting to feel very threatened and, and confused as to what the problem is and someone speaks english starts to translate and i don't think we even realized it no i think we realized it at that point basically we didn't know but there was a period of national mourning for 24 hours after the earthquake and we had unwittingly done this during those 24 hours or 48 hours i can't remember basically there was like no entertainment whatsoever in the whole of china you weren't allowed to wear bright colors you you oh, know God. ringtones which had previously been tunes like you know pop songs were just ringing now there wasn't any kind of like entertainment on television or radio or anything and you, and you were we didn't know this and we were, were like clowning so we you know basically and also so so we were told you know it was very disrespectful but also there had been and we had i don't think we'd known about this at the time but afterwards we heard that there were loads of scams going on in other chinese cities where people were raising money and keeping it for themselves uh, oh, yeah, of <laughs> so so we we basically the police arrived and we had to go with them to the police station me and my boyfriend were on bikes but the guy who was the clown was on a tall bike so it was a double bike so he, we were cycling after this police car, like, <laughs> round the corner to the police station on this double bike and bikes feeling really stupid. And they gave us a bit of a dressing down and told us to take the money to the collecting station and that was it. Which is where you would have taken it anyway. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I no, mean, they, they weren't angry at us. Yeah. They were just like, you need to respect China's laws and customs, which is what they always say. There was almost like a, a water crisis because there was a rumour that the water had been contaminated because of the earthquake. So people started panic buying water. And we were part of that. We almost got into a fight about some water. There was also like a week after the earthquake, there was a scare that there was going to be a really big aftershock in the night. And so everyone slept outside. We didn't because we thought it was bullshit and that we, you know, 
we were on the first floor, so we felt, oh, if we feel the earthquake, then we'll just run oh, out. Wow. But loads of people just slept in tents or slept in parks and didn't sleep at all. And there was. It sounds like there was a lot of sort of strange rumours going on around. Oh yeah, rumours everywhere. It was really weird and and really kind of. Yeah, really unhealthy stuff. It's quite a rumour-driven society, but even some of the rumours were kind of reported on TV and stuff like that, mm. so it was all just panicky and horrible, basically, but very interesting. Yeah. And then there was this kind of almost competitive element amongst foreigners or kind of, you know, Western-influenced Chinese people who we knew to see who could do good the most ah, yeah, like, you know, who could who could get to the, the earthquake zone to give enough charity you know all this stuff it was really weird yeah, it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds very very surreal when did you become interested in food like when when did mm. that passion start mm. when i was growing up food was always important to my family and i'm from a jewish family and food is very important in in judaism traditions and culture and I think I always just liked cooking you know I enjoyed cooking from a really young age was doing it independently in my teens quite happily and when I went to university I just loved it yeah I it's just it's it's something that I guess that I've been brought up with you know yeah. both my parents really love their food and my mum particularly is a really great cook and I think you know quite a lot for me uh, food is is a expression of creativity you know it's a it's artistic it's a very creative process and I think when I was growing up because I didn't really I did music a lot but I didn't do art and so I guess my kind of visual things came out through that and when I was at university I got really really into it as well I did lots of kind of cooking things lived in a big communal house where we cooked communally a lot nice met my best friend who is similar level of obsession i've traveled a lot and tried the food and I, I do i think of food as a real kind of cultural bridger and kind of cultural divide smasher because well. <laughs> i do think you know if you're open-minded in food you can be open-minded in loads of different things and sure. i think it, the two do follow on from each other and if you're close-minded with food i probably won't get on with you <laughs> Which is well, my own closed-mindedness. Well, that, yeah, well that's, that's an interesting point of view on that. <laughs> Having heard your audio work, and it's interesting to me that you just said you'd done a lot of music because the piece that you played, which I heard, was was related to music, was about music. Mm. And it's interesting to me that when when you sort of were describing this kind of moment when you became interested in working in the media, it was very much it was it was blogging, it was written, it was constructed. It, words and then when you had this moment where you realized you could do audio again it was you were you were editing an, an interview and you were taking all these these words and that, that's what I do on this show yeah. I take 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 a and with a musician as well yeah mm. but 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 your piece mm. it was very much about sound mm. rather than words mm. yeah yeah I mean well that's interesting because like growing up you know the two subjects at, at school and college that I gravitated towards were English and music uh, and I do think that actually though that's what I love about radio is that it combines the two you know mm. like I do have a really great love of words and literature but I have a very deep love of music as well and you know I studied the cello for a long time so 
I'm very I'm mu- I'm musical. Yeah, yeah. So like, your, your piece yeah, is about cello. It's about the cello. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love music, and it's something that's very, very important to me in quite a kind of serious, geeky way. And that's one of the things which I love about the radio is that it's it's musical. You know, it's it's sound. It's words that words have a music to them. Mm-hmm. You can have the meaning of the words, but you're. I am also really. I mean, I'm I'm a sound geek. I love the sound of things you know i love unusual sounds and i love mm-hmm. recording unusual sounds but i am very interested in in the words as well and i think you can tell that in in that piece as yeah, well oh, sure, because sure. you know some of the things that i think that those two cellists say oh yeah you, kind of quite, there's definitely words it's, it's about the words yeah. as well as the music yeah, yeah. and I, that's why i love radio is because it do it, it satisfies those both sides of but, me but i guess the thing about that piece was that it wasn't it didn't have narration which is yes. the which is the the thing that that radio almost does by standard in this country yeah. certainly well you know i credit my tutor uh, former tutor and colleague Alan Hall a lot with that because he's taught me so much about the musicality of just the interviews and you know his his thing is is non-narrated documentary right and so you know he taught that aspect of our course the creative radio the the creative documentary making side and our very first piece of you know that we do it five minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes and the first piece could not have narration in it that's an interesting yeah. challenge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and personally, I'm not that into narration. I'm really not. All my pieces that I made for that course had no narration. And I much prefer to let the the recordings themselves tell the story. I think that's one of the challenges of, of making radio stories like that. It's a harder... Th- I think it's much harder to oh, do yeah. it without the, without the yeah, narration. Yeah, yeah, of course. Narration's a real easy fix to any, any problem you've got, I, in a way. I, I think you're right, but personally, I find narration difficult to write and not my forte at sure, all. Sure, I'm, I'm not defending... No, 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 but it's funny like because, that. you know, like, I, I know that it's, it's, it is the easier thing, but for me, it's not. Not ah, at all. Okay. I, I find it difficult. I find it an uphill struggle because I have done some pieces which had narration, my own narration, and I just I'm not into them. I'm much more into just telling. I think they're more. It can be more subtle, basically, l- no narration pieces. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I I occasionally do sort of pieces that have got narration for this show, but I I don't really like like even though I'm a writer and I work with words. I don't really like written narration. I much prefer conversation, but on your own, you know, conversation mm-hmm. into the microphone and then afterwards I oh, edit it and make it work. Yeah, like yeah. I, I, that's the kind of narration I prefer mm. if I've got to have narration. Mm. I mean, the piece you heard actually is one of the few things I've written narration for and that was because it was for a specific brief yeah. I was originally working with. Although the piece you heard was adapted from that. But I really loved your narration on that. And I'm I'm very kind of envious of people who seem to be able to write effective narration because I don't think I can... I, well, I'm, I'm working on it, but it's definitely, you know, and I haven't had... I haven't actually taken the opportunities with my course to, to really develop that. But it was because I felt much more comfortable with just the raw material and just doing it with that. And I always... I did even when I was just experimenting for myself, you know. I wasn't into talking into the microphone myself no well it took me a while to get into the idea um but yeah i mean i I really enjoy pieces like that that just use 
use sound to tell a story it's very rare actually that people do it well and i, I thought mm. you did do it well so i was impressed well, that's fantastic it's, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you i uh it's always strange when it's someone i've only met once before because I, I just don't I, it's like i don't know where the conversation's going to go and it went to some interesting places i had no idea i'd be talking about the experience of, of going through an earthquake mm. and hopefully it, i didn't pry too much into your into your life i sort no. of was aware away, there, were, like there were areas it. I could have accidentally gone too far into. Mm-mm, not at all. Yeah, before, because there's a, there's a little bit of space. Mm-hmm. You are somebody who has had a, an experience similar to mine in that your, your parents split up and lived close together. I mean, did, did you find it weird to talk about at school? Like, that's, mm. that was one of the main things I, I, I find about it. Like, nobody ever understood... Mm why they were living near each other well, oh, in, right. in fact in my case in the same house because that's that's where we differ i think because mm, my, my, my mm. dad and mum lived together for years even though they weren't together and in different situations they, they lived together and it was an interesting decision that they made i'm always a little bit in awe of them for <laughs> for not you know for, for for staying in a way even though they were divorced staying together for the sake of the kids mm. but splitting up as well like mm. had both those sides whereas you had a I didn't know that wasn't I think my my friends were kind of united in our kind of exasperation that it was just happening at all and that it was you know patently obvious that it wasn't a good idea actually no I mean because I was 16 I just accepted things you know and because they they had the house next door it just seemed like the obvious thing to, for them to do but it in retrospect it wasn't the best thing to do definitely sure. and did you go to one of them like did you like that was the thing that i did i went to my dad's half of the house for weekends oh did yeah you do well stuff? no that's the thing that was one of the things where we differ my dad basically from when i was 16 or even earlier but but especially from 16 when they split up kind of rejected me you know didn't invite me to even stay the night at the house even you know because he was like oh it's just next door and you know was not very good at kind of communicating or being close to me from then onwards and what happened after that when he eventually you know moved quite separate from my mom still in the same town was that you know he had a spare room but didn't really make it mine uh and so I wasn't really welcome to stay there so we didn't really ever spend very much quality time together that was you know extended never lived together ever since and um and that's like a quite kind of like painful thing a weird thing because it could have been his brain tumor that that kind of caused his social abilities to deteriorate um because i think it's probably been going on for quite a few years but but we didn't know that at the time i just thought he's he's kind of rejecting me and and doesn't love me anymore you know and i'm i'm his only child so it was was fairly deep and intense and you know was using me as a go-between for for him and my mum and not you know even when he lived next door to her wouldn't want to come and knock on the door and say anything to her he'd tell me to tell her things Mm. so it was quite it was quite painful and I think um yeah my dad's my dad yeah well my yeah it was funny because at the same time that my parents split up I went to college and was so incredibly happy there Mm. that that really just kind of 
distracted me from from all of that drama and crapness and really like I didn't actually really kind of examine it at all I kind of you know brushed it completely under the carpet and did until until 2010 when I moved back to the to the UK so for 10 years I just didn't didn't talk about it didn't think about it you know the fact that my dad was kind of you know rejecting me along with my mum was something that I didn't really want to acknowledge because it was a very painful thing and I was yeah. only 16 and had you know did do a lot of damage to our relationship and obviously did quite a lot of damage to me as well but it's something that I've kind of so just to tell the whole story in real potted history way, my parents, yeah, split up when I was 16. After that, my dad made very little effort with our relationship, didn't ever come to visit me at university, never called when I lived in China, no nothing. Got worse and worse and worse. Then had this very um, crazy episode where he... Um, uh, uh, when I was in China, emailed me to say that he was disinheriting me because I'd humiliated him when he when I was 16 and they split up and all this stuff about how I was a, a kind of, you know, uh, disgrace, blah, blah, blah. And mm. I was just completely out of the blue and crazy and I thought he was having some sort of nervous breakdown. He eventually, it kind of went back and forth, me saying sorry and him forgiving me and then saying, no, I can't forgive you and this and that. And then uh, he said, OK, I don't want to talk to you until you come back. He knew I was coming back to England. That was that time that I came back and then didn't mention it when I saw him. And then six months later, he suddenly started to behave even stranger. And I got all these calls from his sister and from his friends saying, you've got to come back from China. I'd already been planning to come back yeah. from China. So it was kind of good timing saying that there was something wrong with him, that, you know, he might be senile, they didn't know, no one knew what was wrong with him, but he was behaving very, very strangely. And his behaviour got more and more intense when I came back to the UK. He ended up being sectioned under the Mental Health Act because he wouldn't go to the doctors. He was very paranoid about doctors. And eventually they convinced him when he was in hospital to have um once he'd been sectioned to have uh because the, the doctor who'd seen him or doctors who had seen him said this is possibly a brain tumor you need to get your brain scanned and so and it turned out that it was and at the time so this was like may 2010 he uh and our relationship had been terrible for years and i was suddenly kind of back thrown in at the very deep end mm. dealing with all of this and my parents had split up so my mum had a very weird kind of thing uh, relationship with it and um, and they gave him three to six months to live but he's still with us now everybody it's, it's a funny <laughs> thing everybody I know who's been diagnosed with a brain mm. tumour has been given a very small amount of time to live and then they've all lived for a, a long time oh really because yeah. I don't know anyone else who's been ah, diagnosed interesting my, my my first girlfriend's mum had a brain tumour. Really? And uh, a friend of mine, I think her... I, I always... I might be I might be confused, but her, her mum's certainly has a terminal illness mm. that she's lived a lot longer from. But your ex-girlfriend's mum eventually died, I I don't know, because I am no longer in right. contact with her. Mm -hmm. But certainly, she, when I knew her... when Because I, I, this is sort of 16 to 18. Yeah. Um her mum had already lived for long, much longer mm. than they'd said. So, mm. I mean, I guess that's a that's a good thing. Or, it is a good know. thing in some ways because it's allowed 
you know, it has allowed me and my dad to repair our relationship to a certain degree. Sure. Only really on my side. You know, he, he, he's less and less aware as time. So it's been two years, and over two years since his diagnosis. And he's really rapidly deteriorated in the past kind of six months. So he's, you know, very, um, you know, can't really communicate, can't really walk. And is very disabled and it's very kind of distressing. But for like, you know, a year after his diagnosis I didn't even want to go to see him because he you know I had such horrible com conflicted feelings about mm. him and he didn't exactly make it easier for me then because he would always be laying guilt trips on me saying that I needed to get him out of this he, he was he was eventually moved to a nursing home which now is very appropriate for his needs but maybe when he first moved in wasn't okay. because he was actually quite compasmentous but crazy crazy but compasmentous and that you know made it very difficult because he was very uh, verbally abusive that, towards yeah, that's, me that's a very hard combination yeah it was a very hard combination yeah. but i've had lots of therapy <laughs> <laughs> so i can handle it a little well, bit more now well that's, but it, that's, and it's got better well that's good i mean yeah. it, it seems it's like a, a good uh i mean it's it's a good opportunity for you to understand you know who where he, you are, yeah. where he came from and who you are. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny what you were saying about like I found like I have you know different issues, different things in my life, but I've I've definitely found that you know there were things I didn't address for you know ten years or whatever, and mm. and then you know during that time it was good not to address them. You know, yeah. it, actually coming to them new now as a as a a different person with mm -hmm. different kind of strengths and different opportunities to reevaluate it. Yeah. It makes it easier. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't regret any of the, the kind of brushing it under the carpet years because I was getting on with my life and yeah, I was very exactly. happy. But and I definitely don't blame myself. I slight I do slightly blame my father for behaving the way that he did, but it's very hard to maintain that when you know that it could have been not his fault. You know, yeah. it's it's very complicated. But blames are blames a hard thing. Blames a hard thing. Yeah. You can't I had to go through the blame. I definitely you know, went through a stage of really blaming him and being very angry with him. But as I said, I think I've moved beyond that. There's this quote by I think her name is Reverend Kathy Ann Williams, mm -hmm. um, that I recently came across and it may it may go out before or after but it will be featured at some point in the show anyway mm -hmm. but I, there's a quote which says forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past and like yeah. that's what I find it is it's like you, yeah. you, you, you know when you're angry it's because you want to go back and change stuff that you can't change mm. you just can't change yeah, it yeah exactly and like when you realise you can't change it it's kind of a beautiful moment where yeah. you're just like oh yeah. thank god like I don't have to be so angry about all of those things I can't change and also that you, or that you you know you, uh, well you know like that you can be angry about them you can you know be sad about them but you know that you can't do anything about them and you mm. accept them as part of who you are you know I do think you know like I mean there's anger and there's anger isn't there there's anger that kind of consumes you yeah and then there's just you know being angry about certain things that happened yeah. in, a, in a low level way you know where you think it's a shame that it wasn't like yeah, that. Yeah, you know? but it's the level, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Level. And and it can be very consuming, you know, like because I, you know, because I did, you know, really 
you know, even though my dad had been diagnosed with a brain tumour, I felt so... And that was why I felt so conflicted and confused, because I felt so angry of him. I felt angry of him that he got to that stage, that he hadn't sought medical help beforehand. It's I felt, hard, yeah. I felt angry of him that he was putting all of this on me, you know, his only child who he'd neglected for 15 years. And I felt, you know, it was, yeah. it was really mean, I'm not, complicated. I'm not, yeah, I'm not laughing, you know. At no, it was funny. It, it, is, it, is, it funny. is funny. It's hilarious. These things are funny. And, and truth is stranger than fiction, for sure. Yeah. And I, you know, like, so, and, and at the same time, I felt terrible because I was like, I was beating myself up constantly for having these emotions because mm. I felt like as my father, you know, my father is terminally ill, I needed to care you know, unthinkingly about his welfare and be completely selfless and mm. kind of, you know, like Mother Teresa like. And I'm not like that. Nobody is. Nobody, Nobody is. But you... I didn't, I, and also I didn't need to feel like that. You know, everyone who who understood the situation knew why I was feeling conflicted, mm. but I couldn't accept that part of myself. And so I was just like my own worst enemy at that point. It was just yeah, kind of like it. constant self-hate. And that's what therapy helps you with yeah well I, yeah absolutely i try i tried to get get therapy on the national health but it's very very hard to get yeah very so, uh, i got it for a charity who i would like to mention because i love sure them. well Cam- we're in the kind of camden women in health yay well there we go that's great almost it's not a detour because it was it was things that had been hinted at before yeah, i'm glad yeah. we covered them and i do feel like that's a part i'm glad we covered them as well because that's a big part of who i am now like that, what you've, what we've talked about gives a nice, you know, mid-level depth of yeah. understanding of who I am. Well, that's because good, that's kind of what I go for. <laughs> uh, the level of depth depends on how well I know the person yeah, in advance. Yeah, exactly. The last question that I ask mm-hmm. is, do you have anything to plug? I have a website, jessielevine.com, which I keep updated with everything audio related so i don't use it to kind of update stuff with my cooking or chinatown tours although it mentions that on the on the site but it's mainly my kind of like blog slash cv and so that always has my work on it regularly so do check that out my twitter name is london lawai it's london underscore lawai is chinese for foreigner and it's l-a-o-w-a-i and the and i that's a kind of a pun it's got a double meaning a london lawai could be a foreigner to china but from london yeah but it could be the other way around it could be you know someone who is foreign who lives in london yeah and so it was a kind of pun on that i think kind of quite neatly sums up how i feel about myself yeah. Although London's a strange place where everyone feels like a foreigner. Exactly. And that's... I mean, you know, I, I, I don't come from London originally, and you don't come from London no, originally. No. So we're all, you know, so it's a city full of foreigners. Yeah, exactly. Whether they're, whether they're from this country or not, you know, yeah. we're all, all found ourselves here. Yeah, indeed. Well, not everybody, obviously, there's, there's, there's Some you know, a lot of Londoners <laughs> who would be very annoyed with <laughs> yeah. So, um, So that's Twitter. I do my Chinatown food tours. I have a like page yeah, on Facebook. Facebook. Also, my pop-up restaurant, World Brunch Club. Search for World Brunch Club. You'll find us, and you can like that there. The last thing I ask people to do. Oh, the last thing. I've yeah. The last, thing the last, last question. Thing. I've, I'm, I'm aware of that. Actually, it's, it's kind of almost a double a double take because I always say the last question I ask people, and then I, then I after last that thing. I say the last thing I ask people to do, which is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. <laughs> I like the question, I like the question. 
That's good. Okay. Goodbye, audience. Yeah. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>find getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can find it on facebook it's getting better acquainted have a search on facebook and like it or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk you can also subscribe by searching on itunes and subscribing to us that way and on the stitcher smart radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted i make a podcast about conversations and so that should suggest to you that i love conversations and i love real people's conversations everyday people's conversations about their lives and their thoughts the conversations that never get heard some of those conversations are getting heard though at the moment There's this new project that I'd like to tell you about that my friend Jesse Levine from In The Dark is part of called The Listening Project. It's an ambitious new partnership between BBC Radio 4, BBC Local and National Radio Stations and the British Library. They are asking people up and down the country to share an intimate conversation with a close friend or relative to help build up a unique picture of our lives today. Some of these conversations will be broadcast across BBC Radio and archived by the British Library, preserving them for future generations. BBC Radio producers have been gathering conversations from across the UK, covering everything from living with Alzheimer's to falling in love in the front seat of a reliant robin. And now they'd like you to record and share your own conversations. Perhaps you know someone with a fantastic story that you'd love them to share with the world. There may be something that you've always wanted to discuss with someone close to you. Or maybe you just like to celebrate happy moments in your life or reflect on memories of a dearly departed friend. What you talk about is completely up to you. This project is about creating space for you and a loved one to have the conversation you always meant to have. By taking part, you'll also have the chance to be a part of history. You can choose to submit your conversation to the British Library, who may add it to their permanent audio archive. Don't worry if you've never recorded anything before. They've written a simple step-by-step guide on their website. All you need is a computer, a laptop, camera or phone with a microphone. And believe me, if I can record a conversation, you can record a conversation. Find out more about The Listening Project by typing The Listening Project into Google or by going to bbc.co.uk slash radio4 slash features slash the hyphen listening hyphen project. And it will take you through how to record your conversations. I really think recording conversations is a valuable thing. It's valuable for you and it's valuable for the people who listen. So... Why not be a part of this really excellent project?